It's a combination of a bubble, a Ponzi scheme, and an environmental disaster. That's how one of the world's leading authorities on finance and economics described Bitcoin earlier this year. On this week's episode, we'll explore the world of cryptocurrencies and dig into why they're unlikely to live up to the hype, where cryptocurrencies might actually hold some promise, and how Bitcoin might end up breaking the internet. Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. On this episode, we head across the Atlantic to talk with our guest, who's based in Switzerland at the Bank for International Settlements, which is essentially a central bank for central banks. Hyun Song Shin is the head of research at the BIS. Previously, he was a professor at Princeton University and the London School of Economics. Dr. Shin, thank you for joining us on Benchmark. Thank you, Scott. It's good to be on the, on the show. Now, Hyun, it was actually your boss, Augustine Karstens, the head of the BIS, who made that comment about Bitcoin being a bubble, a Ponzi scheme, and an environmental disaster. You recently had a chapter in the BIS economic report and made a speech on the topic that were a bit less sensational, though still critical of the limits with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Before we get into those issues, let me ask you, why do you think Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies have gotten so much hype and attention and hit a nerve with some people as the next big thing? I think it's the uh, promise of technology solving one of the basic problems in economics, which is to generate trust in a very decentralized way. And uh, to really address that question, it's worth uh, thinking about what money is. And money is a social institution where I accept money as payment uh, in the expectation that others will accept money. And in that sense, money itself is a worthless token. And that's true whether it's a piece of paper with a face on it or whether it's the digital token. But the fact that others accept the money gives it value. And in that sense, although the tokens are intrinsically worthless, it becomes something of value because of the social conventions that back up the use of money. And I think what's really captured the imagination is that um, uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have come along, uh, which promise money-like acceptability, but without the backing of a central authority, like a central bank. That's right. And I found that uh, history of money in your chapter very fascinating. And, and I agree that it is kind of avoiding that use of authority, this anti-authority streak that runs through some veins of our world that's probably driving that. Let's just talk about the use of Bitcoin for a moment. How does buying something with Bitcoin compare or contrast with a regular online transaction that I might do with a credit card? Yeah, so I think you know, it's uh, worth looking at some of, the, some of the basic concepts here. When anthropologists have looked back and looked at early human societies without money, I mean, they conjecture that you know, goods were provided uh, for the promise of someone to return the favor in the future. And in that sense, uh, money can be seen as a kind of record-keeping device where we keep tabs on who's paid whom and uh, who owes what to whom. And rather than having a tangle of IOUs, money is a kind of summary of the services that you've provided others in the past. And it gives you a, 
an entitlement to goods and services uh, with respect to others in the future. Now, the way that uh, cryptocurrencies work, in particular a blockchain-based cryptocurrencies work, is that it's an ecosystem which has uh, the users who make and receive payments, but then you need uh, others to maintain the system. So there are the bookkeepers who record the transactions. And what's uh, very distinctive about Bitcoin and other similar cryptocurrencies is that the uh, register is maintained by broadcasting the transactions to every node in the system. That's to say, every uh, there is a, a network of bookkeepers and uh, the ledger is updated simultaneously so that every ledger is identical. And in that sense, uh, there is no need for a central authority. So if I were to make a, a transaction, what would happen is I would record the transaction, make a payment to, let's say, a vendor, and then uh, the, the bookkeeper who, who uh, will update the ledger will then broadcast that transaction to every other bookkeeper. And all the books, all the ledgers are updated simultaneously. And so when everyone accepts that transaction, uh, that would be uh, a valid transaction within the system. And that's different from a traditional system, the current system, where it's really a central authority like the central bank that would validate transaction, correct? That's right. So under the conventional system, what would happen is that I have a deposit in a bank and then I make a payment by instructing the bank to make the payment to a vendor. And what the bank would do is then to debit my account and credit the account of the vendor. And in the uh, payment system as a whole, Ultimately, what would back up the system is that these transactions are then settled on the central bank's balance sheet. Now, when you talk about how everybody has to keep this ledger, this gets to the issue of why Bitcoin or why cryptocurrencies can only get so big. You really get to this issue of what you call scalability. What would happen if if Bitcoin or cryptocurrency were to become so widely used that it were kind of like a, a global currency? And it would require tons and tons of computing power just to process each individual transaction. Is that where we get into the environmental disaster part of what Mr. Carson said? Yes, I think this goes to the ecosystem that I uh, discussed earlier. So there are uh, the users who make and receive payments, but then there are the bookkeepers. And the way that uh, this, the system works is to use the individual incentives of the bookkeepers so that, that they have an incentive to maintain the system and they have an incentive to maintain the system that keeps the, the records faithful to the intentions of the users. And um, the way that it works in the case of Bitcoin is that the miners compete to scoop up the uh, transactions that are waiting to be processed and they compete by uh, solving mathematical puzzles using computing power at their disposal. And the solution of the puzzles do not serve any particular purpose in itself other than to select a miner to update a payment. And um, the natural question then is, what is in it for the miners? Uh, what are the incentives for the miners to engage in this uh, kind of activity? And the answer is, of course, that uh, they receive a reward for um, engaging in mining and engaging in uh, updating the ledger. And the reward 
comes in two forms. Uh, one is a reward in terms of the, of the Bitcoin itself. So there's a block reward, so-called. But that part is due to be phased out over time. But the other part, which is the crucial part, is that the, the users pay a voluntary user fee. So they pay a fee so that their transactions are processed. And because it's voluntary, it really depends on how uh, much the system is being used at that time. So if there is a lot of congestion in the system where many users are trying to have their transaction processed, then you're, you're competing with other users who are uh, also paying their fees. So um, when uh, you have a lot of congestion, you can have episodes when uh, the users have to pay quite a high fee in order for their transaction to be processed. At some point last year, in December, you had to pay in excess of $50 per transaction in order to have your... Um, for a $2 coffee, as you, as you mentioned in that paper, right? <laughs> exactly. So if you bought a $2 coffee and insisted on paying for it using Bitcoin, you would have had to pay in excess of $50 to have that transaction processed. Now, the natural question there is, uh, why don't you just increase the capacity? Um, because that is simply a technical issue. But I think this is where uh, the question becomes very interesting because uh, we need to think about not only the technology, but also the economics. Because uh, the question then is, what's in it for the miner when you increase the capacity? Well, there, because the user fee is voluntary, if you increase the capacity to such an extent that uh, there is no congestion, then uh, the users really have no incentive to pay a voluntary user fee. And then there are no rewards there to be collected by the miners. And the bookkeepers themselves will have no uh, rewards to sustain you know, their activity. So I think this is a case where the economics really bump into the, the technology. How do you get from here to where you say that it could break the internet if it gets too big? I think that's really about the specific workings of, uh, of a particular type of cryptocurrency, which is, which is Bitcoin. And there, the idea is that uh, once the transactions uh, accumulate over time, uh, and, the, um, and the value of a system like this is that uh, the whole history of transactions are recorded, and everyone is carrying around the ledger of all the past transactions. And uh, the size of the transactions become larger and larger. And uh, if you imagine uh, lugging around a very large ledger of the history of all transactions in, that uh, ever occurred, then these files can become larger and larger. And it could become a very big burden on, on the capacity of the system to actually uh, maintain. But of course, this is uh, particular to a specific cryptocurrency, which is Bitcoin. It's not a general point about cryptocurrencies that may rely on alternative ways of keeping records. So let's talk about the other issue, another major issue that you discussed, and that's the finality of the transactions. Can you talk a little bit about, about this hurdle that someone might be able to actually go back and maybe erase the transaction you made to, to falsify the ledger, isn't that a major weakness of cryptocurrencies? Yes, and I think this, uh, um, the issue of finality goes back to uh, what a payment system is. So finality is the idea that once you've made a payment, it's final, so that uh, no one can go back and 
alter the facts to to you know distort history as it were and so the technical issue here is that uh, because what is a valid payment depends on what the bookkeepers agree is a valid payment it is the result of the collective decision of the bookkeepers themselves and just as uh, there is a um, an interaction between the users there is also an interaction between the miners and the way that uh, blockchain-based cryptocurrency works is that uh, what is the truth depends on what is the current valid chain of the blocks of transactions. And uh, theoretically, it is possible for a group of the bookkeepers to collude and hitch the latest transaction to a block that is further up the chain rather than uh, follow the rules and uh, hitch the block to the longest chain. And if that happens, uh, the, the branch that consists of the transactions uh, recorded in the block that uh, comes to a dead end become all void. And so um, you may have thought that you have uh, bought something and paid for it, but then if it uh, is part of a branch that dies off, it no longer becomes valid. And so um, if your transaction ends up in one of these uh, dead end uh, chains, uh, your payment, which you thought you had made, turns out not to have been made after all. And so, although it's uh, very likely that when your transaction is accepted and hitched to the latest chain, that your payment is valid, it's not 100% uh, valid. It's uh, valid with a very high percentage, but not exactly 100%. And once some um, you allow the possibility that a payment may not be final with 100% certainty. What you might come across is a case where uh, you would like to make a payment which, uh, which is conditional on another payment. So uh, if it's a very large payment, um, I don't have money in my account at the moment, I am relying on receiving a payment in order to make my own payment. Well, imagine that uh, we have an economy where uh, there is a large network of these very complex payments. If it turns out that uh, some of the payments in the past uh, are declared null and void, then there will be a cascade of payments which were relying on that payment, which become undermined as well. So you could have another twist to what is a fairly familiar problem in systemic risk where could have a cascade of defaults where one payment being declared void will uh, mean that other payments are uh, declared void as well. Now, it doesn't sound like a very stable system or, or at least something with a lot of holes that you're describing, probably why central banks have been fairly downbeat on, on um, cryptocurrencies as, as something that you know could actually be used in the world. And the Bank for International Settlements view is, uh, you know, it's partly because as a bank that kind of gathers central bankers together, institution that gathers them together, you often talk about these kinds of regulatory issues. Is there any way that this world can potentially be regulated by any institution? Would you basically have to create a new global regulator out of whole cloth if this were to become something that was that was more widely used? I think to some extent, uh, the, the whole nature of cryptocurrencies is that uh, they were designed to 
lie outside any particular jurisdiction. Uh, but I think the issue of regulation, you know, need not become a a big issue unless it affects you know other aspects of economic activity. I think what what has generated some disquiet is the fact that cryptocurrencies piggyback on the conventional monetary system. I mean, it's uh, it's really the price in conventional money of uh, cryptocurrencies, which has uh, grabbed all the headlines. And it's the way in which um, it has taken on some of the appearance of financial assets that has, uh, I think, uh, also generated some, some concern. So it's the fact that they, they are intertwined with the conventional monetary system and uh, they have a price in terms of conventional money which you know gives it another dimension and um, I think there is a larger debate about uh, whether cryptocurrencies have taken on more of a character of an asset where people pay to uh, hold them rather than to use them as money and I think it's the second aspect uh, of uh, you know this uh, attribute of cryptocurrencies as financial assets which has uh, I think generated the debate about whether, uh, about whether they should be regulated, uh, whether consumers uh, should be protected from fraud and market manipulation. Uh, and I think this is where um, the, um, the debates on regulation have become you know, much more acute. And certainly the price of Bitcoin has been a regular headline on uh, Bloomberg for some years now. Now, aside from how big Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies would get, you know, we hear a lot about blockchain technology that you were discussing and, you know, how it could potentially be used in ways maybe outside of the cryptocurrency world. Is there promise for blockchain technology by itself? And in addition, are there potential uses for cryptocurrencies on a small scale that might be valid, that might actually help some corners of the financial system? I think it's uh, uh, definitely the case that the technology itself has many useful um, applications. Um, the, the general version of blockchain is what's called distributed ledger technology. And the idea there is that among many dispersed individuals, um, they can keep a, a record of the current state of a complex system by updating in, um, in real time the ledger. Uh, of all the uh, transactions, so that everyone can have the same view of um, where things stand. So this is an idea with, with many applications. For example, within a single firm, where you have many uh, decision makers within the firm, but uh, you know, they may be separated by distance and uh, they may be separated by different time zones, but you can always uh, keep track of uh, where things stand, where you stand with respect to the system. And this is just like any other database where, you know, you can update, uh, you know, who's paid whom, uh, where the goods are, um, where the next input needs to be made, and so on. And the technology itself can be uh, maintained without uh, any particular use as uh, as currency. It's just like, it's just like updating an Excel spreadsheet, uh, but making sure that everyone has exactly the same copy of that spreadsheet. I think where it becomes much more difficult is when the technology uh, takes on this attribute of a financial asset, which uh, then masquerades as a currency, uh, and then uh, you know gives rise to uh, promises that uh, may not be fully fulfilled 
you know, given the, uh, some of the underlying flaws uh, of the economics. Now, to wrap up, in, in your speech, you conclude that cryptocurrencies, quote, fall a long way short of being able to sustain a monetary system. After all we've discussed here, is there any chance that we're all wrong and we'll wake up one day and it will be central banks who are the relics and Bitcoin that's replaced the dollar as the world's leading currency? I think the bar for that is quite high. If we think about the way that uh, the monetary system works, it's uh, underpinned by trust. And the promise of cryptocurrencies is that you can deliver that trust in a decentralized way, while at the same time having the scale to accommodate uh, uh, you know, very large transactions by very many people in a flexible way, and something which uh, gives certainty. And it's uh, certainly possible that the technology will advance, uh, that uh, will iron out some of the wrinkles. But one of the things that we tried very hard to do um, in the special chapter of the annual economic report is to point out that the underlying economics uh, are really quite challenging. And uh, no matter how advanced the technology becomes, the underlying problems in, a, in the economics look like uh, you know, quite insurmountable problems. Okay, Hyunsong Shin, Head of Research at the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland. Thank you very much for being with us on Benchmark. Thank you, Scott. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Scott Landman. And our guest is at H-Y-U-N-S-O-N-G-S-H-I-N. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.